Welcome to Conversations, a podcast by Christ Presbyterian Church, Auburn, where we sit down weekly with our pastor, Eric Zellner, and seek to apply God's Word to our daily lives. We hope that this podcast will profit you as you join us. Welcome back to the Christ Presbyterian Church Podcast. I'm your host, William Skinner, and I'm joined again this morning by Eric Zellner. Eric, you doing well? I'm doing well. Good morning, William. Morning. So this is Conversations, uh, a podcast from Christ Presbyterian Church in Auburn, and this is episode three this morning, and the title of this episode is Glad Tidings. And that is uh, our, our thought this morning is to talk about um, evangelism. What, what does it mean to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? So this morning, the first thing we're going to do is read the notorious text on evangelism in the Bible, the Great Commission, uh, Christ's commission to his church. So Eric, if it's good with you, we'll go ahead and read the text. Sure. That's right. This morning, um, we're going to be reading Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, if anyone would like to read along from home. Beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." All right, so Eric, what what can we learn right off the bat um, from this text on evangelism? Yeah, I think you know, obviously, the whole the church has traditionally used this as a uh, as a call to missions and a call to evangelism. And so, the first thing to recognize is, of course, Jesus is thinking in terms of the kingdom of God uh, going forth. It's going to be spreading, but the way it's going to go forth is by his disciples going. And, you know, there's been a, a lot of pastors who over the years have made somewhat of a big deal over the fact that that go, therefore, is really as you are going, meaning meaning go, live your, live your life, uh, but be prepared in the course of the daily life, in the course of moving ahead to be thinking with this new kingdom mindset. And that new kingdom mindset is as a believer in Christ, one who is now dedicated to not this old kingdom of the world but a new kingdom – that we are really to to go seeking the purpose of of bringing others into that kingdom, and so he doesn't say go and 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 get some conversions. He he likewise doesn't say go and get some people to pray a sinner's prayer, which is created in the 1900s. Rather, he says he says go and be actively about the business of making disciples, which is totally different, but it's actually better. And it's more rich and full. So when we go and when we make disciples, practically, what is our posture? How are we practically um, going? How are we practically making disciples? Sure. Well, it, suddenly what it does is that is it doesn't allow um, any of Jesus's followers to isolate their world into little tiny pockets, right? And there's a tendency in all of us to isolate my working world over here, my school world over here, my, my, my time when the door is shut over here and nobody sees me, uh, my time when I'm at church as a different world entirely. 
And so what you get is a segmented life. And what Jesus is calling his disciples to do is to begin to think of Jesus Christ and his kingdom as the central part of all of life. So when I go to work, uh, I am thinking of, of not simply trying to make sure the guy next to me gets a ticket into heaven, but I'm, I'm, I'm there thinking in terms of being the very best employee that I can be, which is in that sense casting a, a, a light of, of beauty onto the kingdom itself. It's saying I'm the kind of citizen who comes and works and does my job really well. But likewise, in the course of working with people, there's going to be um, calamities, trials, sicknesses, uh, heartaches that happen in the lives of your fellow workers, and you're going to have the opportunity to, to minister Christ in the midst of that. All right, so, so what that suddenly does is that I begin to think about my, my work life as a, a, a mission field for the sake of the kingdom, but not in the classic conversion sense, not in like, I just hope I can get as many people uh, into the kingdom without annoying everybody at the office. Um, I've worked with people prior to going to seminary that um, I felt like they might have even ruined their opportunities to share Christ because they were not willing to, to care for the whole person. And so the other dynamic of this is that, so if you're a student, you're thinking in terms of uh, getting to know the whole person in, in my class who's sitting next to me, who am I encountering in various contexts. And, and so when we talk about making disciples, it is the difference of simply wanting someone to say a prayer so that I can pat myself on the back and go, okay, good, let me check the box. We got one converted. Um, clearly in Scripture, uh, discipleship involves a whole life caring for another human being. And, and I'm convinced in a culture that is very skeptical of believers that if we, if we lean on the concept of knocking on doors and simply hoping to get a conversion and being able to go back to headquarters and say, okay, we had three pray to receive Christ, then what that probably does is it it gives unbelievers the sense that we are the field upon which they, they're going to be used. I mean, that they're the field upon which we're going to use them, in other words. Um, and the heart of this is really discipleship means I, I build and develop relationships so that I have the opportunity to, to help encourage and nurture that person into discipleship. Um, so there's nothing in the passage here about praying sinners' prayers or getting conversions or being able to report back to headquarters on how many people were converted today. Uh, right. Uh, and I really like how you're talking about making disciples and we're really like applying what Christ did to the whole of our life in that process. It might be a good time to pause and go check out how did Jesus make disciples in his ministry and how did he reach out? So could we go ahead and read... Um, the, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, when Jesus calls Matthew. Yeah, that's great. That's a perfect time. And just some background, um, in the scripture, Levi is Matthew. So when you hear the name Levi, uh, think Matthew. So this is going to be Mark, chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again behind, beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the, t at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. 
And as he reclined a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So what can we... What can we learn here from how Jesus makes disciples in comparison to what the Pharisees would want? Well, I mean, the, you know, one thing is really obvious, and, and you read the Gospels, and this is super clear. There, uh, Pharisees are under the impression that if we spend time with those who uh, are notorious for sins, then they're going to somehow be defiled. And all of all of Judaism was was uh, morphed over uh, the history of Old Testament Israel into that concept of being defiled. And so if you remember, when Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about it's not what's outside of you that defiles, it's, it's what's inside of you that defiles. And so what Jesus is saying is, you're really all quite unrighteous. Those are the exact people I came to minister to. Uh, the difference is, I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of being defiled by these people who are sinners. I'm actually willing to go to them. And this, you know, when, it, when he, he's saying to Matthew, come and follow me, it is a it is a a relational follow me, right? So, so Jesus is invested in relationships. And then, of course, the, what the real scandal is for the Pharisees in this particular passage is that to have table fellowship with somebody is to, in the Old Testament world, uh, it's to, or really uh, ancient Israel, it's to be affirming that person's lifestyle, right? So, so it's to be saying uh, what they are doing is good, who they are is good. By connecting to them, I'm actually outwardly affirming who they are. And Jesus, and this is why I think this is so useful for us as, as disciple makers, Jesus is, is able to get far beyond himself. Now, granted, he's the redeemer, right? You and I are not the redeemer. But, but there is at least some level of clarity from this passage, that Jesus is willing to sit down with people without fear, either of his reputation being soiled or that he would somehow be um, soiled by them, right? And what's so profound about the whole ministry and the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels is that his is really an extraordinary love. And that extraordinary love is radical in its day, and it allows... Uh, sinners to recognize that there is something wholly and completely different about this one, this Jesus, than the rest. And so uh, if you and I are going to be those who go and make disciples, we've got to be willing likewise to be uh, unafraid of our own reputation soiled and and somewhat confident in the fact that the, that the love that we have to offer through Christ is for those who recognize their need. Um, and so when you look at this, you start to see that an all-of-life evangelism will look like uh, not simply holding myself up with believers, but going out into every sphere that the Lord's called me to go with a totally different mindset, a totally different mentality. So that, that's to me, those are the things you, you can draw from a passage like that. Yeah, that's beautiful. So if we, if we have that mindset, that all-of-life aspect of, of, of imitating Christ and that radical love that, mm-hmm. um, that you talked about, I know we talked about not segmenting our life, but 
as far as thinking about it in this other way, can we practically talk about, and you kind of already talked about occupation and school, but let's kind of talk about some other, um, how that looks in my life in other ways. So um, let's talk about family for those who, who have children and a spouse, um, but really children. Sure. How, how, how does this look like the way that you raise your children? Okay, yeah, that, that's actually that's really going to be the place where the rubber meets the road for a lot of men. If you if you women as you grow and you, and you get married and you have children, um, there's a lot. There's a couple of different philosophies with parents, at least that I've noticed in the church. And one is one is a beginning of the presumption uh, that they're on the outside, and so you have to uh, evangelize them, evangelize them in order to get them inside. Uh, but if we believe the promises that were given to Abraham in Genesis 17, that the promise is for you and to your children and your children's children. It's the same promise that that Peter picks up at Pentecost, and he says the promise, he quotes this exact same passage, and he says this promise of salvation is for you and your children and your children's children. So uh, I, I never want to be anybody who uh, who people say, oh, we need to ask Eric how to parent, but I will, I will say this. Um, our posture towards our children inside our home is that they are, by virtue of two believing parents, by virtue of being baptized into the church, they're actually a part of the covenant community of, of God's people. So instead of seeking a prayer of conversion, I want to teach them what it means to walk with Christ. Hmm. There was a really, uh, I learned something when I was in seminary, not from the classes. I learned it from a my daughter was in a preschool at a local church, and uh, her preschool teacher would say, well, we're trying to help the little children learn to be friends of Jesus. And I used to chuckle at that because it's so, it's so simple and cute. Um, but the longer I, I ruminated on that, the more I realized that's actually precisely what's going on inside the Christian home. We're teaching our children what it means to respond to this offer of grace that's been extended to us. And so discipleship in your own home is the most privileged, organic thing in the entire world. You take them to church, you put them around the word, you pray with them and for them. And then inside the house, what naturally comes up is that my kids come back and they go, hey, some of the kids at school were talking about this today. Can we talk about that? I noticed that uh, this is happening over here in this part of the world. Can we talk about that? And those organic conversations begin to teach your children to think biblically. And so they actually would have to, in that concept, prove themselves to be outside the relationship with God rather than prove themselves to be inside the relationship with God. So, um, But then again, what am I doing? We're seeking to foster a relationship with the individual human right? Instead of my children becoming a field upon which I must create conversion. Um, and, and the only way to do what I'm describing is a firm belief that God's the one who controls conversion. Right. right. And you have 18, 18 years to recline at table with yeah, that's exactly, these gifts. That's exactly Lord. right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, it's a, so it's a tremendous opportunity instead of a tremendous fear. And I noticed a lot of parents feel a sincere weight. And so uh, many people are raised in a home where uh, rigid structure and rule is the governing authority. And so what do children learn? They actually 
hate authority under, under rigidity. But under relationship, it's totally different. So Jesus doesn't come uh, and, and simply, I mean, he, he ramps up the rules only so he can go, you're in desperate need of a savior. Um, and so if you're going to be a parent who ramps up the rules inside your home, you better be ready to point them to Christ. And you also better be the first one to go, see, daddy needs Jesus too. Daddy got angry. Daddy lost his temper. Daddy's running his mouth. Dad, you know what I mean? Learning to repent. It's being yeah. It's teaching your children to be the first repenter right. uh, inside your home. So, so so living amongst living with them, displaying Jesus in the way you live with them. So, kind of a side note on this is, you know, we you talked about this is this is our goal, but we also do want to bring the word into this. We do want there to be teaching. That's um, right. Yeah. So what is the place for, um, in, the, in the Presbyterian church and the Reformed tradition, we, we hold to um, uh, kind of a, almost an outdated word now called, mm-hmm. called catechesis or, or, or using catechisms, which is a, a collection of doctrine to teach. So what is the importance of catechism and how do we make sure we don't turn that into a rigid mm-hmm. uh, Type thing. Sure. Yeah. No, we've jokingly, uh, I've, sh- I've shared around this table that, that even when I had to learn the shorter catechism for ordination and begin to study theology at the, in seminary, uh, one of the methods that I found really useful just because I know how my brain works is that uh, I, I bought these kind of cheesy CDs that had uh, the shorter catechism to, to song. Um, and so here's the thing. When your kids are little, they actually like memorization. It becomes a game. So uh, every night when I put my little ones to bed and they were tiny, I would go over a series of Bible verses. And they thought it was so fun because they they, they would go, oh, I can't, I can't remember how this one starts. And, and, and it was a game for them to be able to rattle off these scriptures, right? So, so now at 12, 13, uh, 14, 17, 19, uh, however old everybody is, at this point, they still have those scriptures locked in memory. Likewise, what I used to do is I would put these CDs in the car, and my kids, who were little at the time, are listening to these quirky songs. But it's actually, it was helping me to memorize the shorter catechism, but it's also giving them truth in the form of song. And so uh, parents can do it different ways. I think uh, when you allow something and you let something be um, taught in a manner that allows them to interact with it in a fun way they get they get kind of excited about it and I'm, I'm not uh, a, a an elementary school teacher or a you know a, an expert on the way small children learn but I just know with my own children making it fun made it work and so I just found mm-hmm. that really helpful and I can hear in the way you're describing this to me that you display to your children I still need these truths as much as you do. <laughs> Right? <laughs> yeah, very much. You're not coming very with a posture of, I have everything figured out, you know, mm-hmm. whip it into shape. It's That's right. We all need this. Yeah, that's exactly right. And of course, you know, as a guy who's preaching every week, I, I always find it helpful to, to think through and listen through the catechism uh, because, of course, those, those basically what catechism is is just a— it's a short, succinct way of stating really deep, sincere doctrines of the scriptures. And so uh, being able to answer— uh, some of those things is a, is just a useful tool to have in your in your brain. But yeah, I need it immensely. Right. Okay, so I felt like that was thank you. That was very helpful on family. So let's switch to our social um, 
our social life, our friends, our, our golf buddies, or whatever, whatever your hobbies may be. Um, for me, that'd probably be hunting. But, you know, how do we use our social outlets? Uh, how, how do we show Christ to, to, to our social uh, yeah. people that we encounter in our social outlets? Well, that's the, that's the nature of the as-you-are-going concept. And so you, it is if Christ becomes the central part of your life and you don't have to um, view people as um, a land to be conquered, but rather as individual human beings, then you can begin to engage with people by asking them questions. Um, There's been several books written. Most people recognize that when Jesus engages with unbelievers in the Gospels, he does it by asking questions. Um, And and a a large part of of Jesus' evangelism is that method, asking questions, learning to interact with people, helping them talk. And when people talk, they begin to reveal what's going on in their own hearts and in their own lives. And so uh, one of the things that I think is helpful just by way of your social outlets and interactions is learning to get to know people and ask them questions. Um, All of us have been with people over a meal uh, who are exhausting to you personally because they're talking at you the entire time. Uh, It's a massive problem if Christians are that way, if they're viewed that way. So we need to think in terms of how can I engage this whole person in whole of life? So if I'm going hunting with somebody, I got an hour in the car with them on the way to the the field or whatever, um, that gives me an opportunity to have, so tell me what's going on uh, in this part of your life. Tell me what's going on here with your kids and your wife and how's work going? And and then all of those conversations end up being connected because you know that in Jesus' kingdom, all of life is connected. Therefore, you can begin to kind of connect those dots and build those bridges for people uh, to see Christ in the midst of those uh, circumstances and their need for him. Right. Okay, so then we've made it through kind of work, school, family, um, social outlets, and um, now we're going to come to the church. So when we think about the church... um, Sometimes I think in our culture, we often think about this as this is the place of evangelism. But w- w- where does the church fit into uh, the Great Commission and this, ta- sure. this conversation? Sure, the concept of evangelism. Uh, that's, a, that's a really helpful question. I always uh, I, I speak and teach in, the, in, in uh, terms of the church is really the place where believers gather on Sunday. And, and worship is actually not for unbelievers. And that, that's a little bit scandalous for, <laughs> for seeker-sensitive churches or things like that. The church is actually for God's people. Um, and, and worship is for God's people. It's for those who have uh, embraced Christ and are really longing to, um, to worship him, right? So what's the place of evangelism uh, as far as the church is concerned? I expect on any given Sunday that, that if people are living their lives seeking to make disciples, that they will invite friends to their church. And I, and, and I recognize even at Christ Pres that, that there's a lot of people there on any given Sunday who may not know the Lord, right? So it's my responsibility to make sure I preach from the text of Scripture and actually stick with the text of Scripture, that I don't get off on, uh, on soapboxes, and I try to I tie this into the gospel itself and make sure that where the Scripture... Um, points us to Christ, that that is a clear uh, offer of the gospel for them. That being said, uh, I don't have to convert worship to something that is going to draw in the masses off the streets, right? Uh, 
I convert worship to what the Bible tells me worship is supposed to look like, right? So I make worship uh, patterned after the Bible, patterned after uh, what, what the Scripture reveals about how God's to be worshiped, which includes this sense of reverence and, and awe, but it also in, includes the sense of joy and wonder and gratitude, um, so many aspects of the gospel. So I, I say that because um, I expect, and there's been lots of studies that have shown this, the vast majority of people attend a church for the first time because a trusted friend invited them, right? So I expect that that people who are living their lives seeking to make disciples for the kingdom of Jesus are going to be the people who are saying, hey, I'd like you to come try our church, check this out, be with us, and sit with us, and hey, let's go have lunch afterwards, and let's talk about it, and uh, if you got questions, I'd love to be a, uh, able to help you think through some of this stuff. So it, it's really learning to live life, but you and I know that for the Christian, the church is the central part of all of life. So therefore, you're inviting that friend into what is really the central part of your life. Uh, I just I just think that ends up uh, being far more authentic and genuine uh, for those who don't know Christ. Right, and I think part of this is we have to step back and think, what are we when we think about Jesus commanded us to go to make to disciple the nations and to baptize and teach them all that He has commanded. Um, the purpose of this is to bring in worshipers of the triune God, of, of the creator God. And so if we cater our worship to to evangelism, we're kind of defeating the point of evangelism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Yeah, the, Evangelism is a... Uh, is to me looking at the Matthew twenty-eight passage. It's a it's a you as the citizens of God's kingdom going into this other kingdom, the kingdom of the world, and and drawing new worshipers in, pointing them to the Savior who saved us. Um, but yeah, worship is worship, and it's and actually you'll you'll hear me th- say this at our church. You and I are not the audience for worship. Um, God is the audience for worship. And so we do not bend our worship simply to what seems pleasing to us, but really just what is honoring and glorifying to God, which is actually profoundly different, but it's precisely what was intended by God in the Old Testament, that here's this nation, Israel, and it's utterly and completely different from all the nations of the world and their worshiping practices. And so in the midst of the the trade routes of the ancient world, everybody's passing through national Israel and they were intended to be able to say, this place is totally different. And and that was a part of what evangelism looked like in the Old Testament. Right. And, and I guess like when, when, when people visit our church, the best thing for, for unbelievers to see is, is a group of people who are just in awe by the holiness of God mm-hmm. and singing his praises in spirit and in truth. And we trust that that's, the best thing for unbelievers to see. It's better than us bending down. Yeah, I actually think the church is pretty terrible at uh, creating cultural replicas, right? So so um, there's better coffee than your local church can offer. There's better bands than your local church can offer. Um, there's there's better speakers maybe in some context than, than what your local church can offer. We are actually coming because this is the worship of the living God. And it's a benefit to unbelievers <clears throat> to see that we are not uh, morphing into some phony picture of what the world already is offering them, but we're being who we are 
and worshiping the true God, and they are getting to come and witness that. Right. Okay, one last, one last thought. Uh, there's a common accusation to people um, with our persuasions uh, that... Um, you mean bald? Is that what you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the, the idea is that if you're reformed, you know, if, you're, if you believe in predestination, um, then your evangelism will naturally be worse or you will be mm-hmm. less uh, you evangelical. You just wouldn't care about it, right? Right. Is that accurate? That's, that's, or at least that's the accusation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I actually tend to say that I think the opposite, but could you, could you give us some thoughts on, on uh, why that's not true? Sure. I mean, Matthew 28 is a response to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And so Jesus is looking at his disciples having already conquered death and hell and their sin, and he's saying, now you go and respond and live your life in this direction, right? So uh, when we think about predestination, what we recognize is that the Lord has commanded us to go in response to what he's already done. But the comfort of the doctrine of predestination as it relates to evangelism is that I don't have to be the one with the most convincing argument to wrestle somebody into the kingdom of heaven. God is always the one who brings about transformation, who brings about heart change. So Paul in 1 Corinthians can say, I planted, Apollos watered. Even others have spoken into many of you, but God is the one who gives the growth. Uh, And so... That any any doctrine uh, that sees predestination as uh, de-incentivizing or demotivating is missing the whole concept of the fact that that what it suddenly does is it frees you and me to simply be those who plant and and water uh, and let God produce the the results. I'm actually more free in that doctrine than I would be if I'm left to go. Oh goodness, everybody in the whole world's perishing, and I got to talk to everybody. Right. Um, that's endless. Right. And, and, and we, we acknowledge that even though God is the one who does everything, he has ordained us as his instruments in that work. So our, our evangelism is, is going out in his strength, glorifying him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I mean by the response to what he's just done, right? That's why he can say that to his disciples. It, it, is, it is glorifying him by pointing more people to the Savior who died on the cross, rose from the dead, and has ascended into heaven. So, Which is a much better motivation than this is all on oh, me. Oh, man, yeah. The other is in, not only incredibly heavy, but what happens if you don't get to see people pray to receive Christ on that night or that afternoon when you're going knocking on doors? Uh, you're left with, a, with a, in some level, a feeling of failure. Um, you must believe that God is the one who controls the fruit uh, and what grows. Right. Well, thank you so much. Um, Yeah, thank you so much, William. It was a fruitful conversation. Absolutely. Well, uh, this concludes today's episode, and we pray that you have been measurably helped by this conversation. And I pray that as you go out, that you will uh, be a blessing to others and you will uh, show Christ to them in the way that you recline at table with others and and live in your households and and amongst friends. I think that's it, Eric. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye.